Welcome to PwC's Accounting Podcast Series. I'm Heather Horn. Today's episode, we're talking about accounting for uncertain tax positions. We'll start by looking at the model and how it works, then dive into some examples to highlight key concepts, and then talk about developments in tax regulations that can impact uncertain tax positions. So definitely a lot to cover. Joining me remotely are frequent guests of the show, PwC partner Jen Spang and PwC Managing Director Cassie Bauman. Jen and Cassie have been on the show a few times before to talk to us about tax topics, and I'm thrilled to have them back. So Jen and Cassie, thank you so much for joining me today. I'm looking forward to our conversation about uncertain tax positions. But before we start, Cassie, can you explain to us what we mean when we say tax position? Absolutely. So a tax position is a position a company has either taken or they expect to take on a tax return that's reflected in measuring either current or deferred income taxes in the financial statements. So this could be kind of during this current year, you know, they might not file their tax return until next year, but they would still um, account for that now because they're expecting to take that position on like 2020 return, for example. So the term tax position can include a wide range of things. Um, It could be things like deciding to exclude taxable income or take a deduction for something in a tax return. It could include the character of the income or loss. So is it capital or ordinary in nature? It could be things like deciding not to file a tax return in a particular jurisdiction or how to allocate income between different tax jurisdictions. Or it could even include an entity's tax status. So is it tax exempt or is it a pass-through type entity? So it's pretty normal for companies to have some sort of uncertain tax positions in the ordinary course of business. So then, Cassie, basically everything in the tax return is a tax position, but I guess only some of them are uncertain. That's right. Okay. So then when do you uh, recognize an uncertain tax position in the financial statements? So the overall model for accounting for uncertain tax positions has two steps to it. There's the recognition step and the measurement step. So an entity should recognize the effect of a tax position. And that just really means like account for it, like actually book a journal entry related to it. When it's more likely than not that the position would be sustained upon examination by a tax authority. And in this case, more likely than not means a likelihood of more than 50%. So the determination here about whether it would be sustained by upon examination by a tax authority is based solely on the technical merits of the tax position. And technical merits derive from sources of authoritative tax law. So that doesn't only include things like the Internal Revenue Code in the U.S., like the actual tax code, but also other statutory provisions, regulations, um, court rulings, notices, announcements, tax treaties, court cases, technical advice, and things called advanced pricing agreements and all all kinds of, there's a a very large um, amount of information that that can go into that technical merits uh, assessment. Jen, is there anything that I, that I missed? So two things that I would highlight, um, detection risk and then administrative practice and precedent. So detection risk is really just saying that an entity needs to presume that a tax position will in fact be examined by the relevant authority, so whatever jurisdiction you're in, and that they have full knowledge and all relevant information. So 
said a different way, even if even if you haven't been audited or you don't typically see them auditing a position, you still have to and you cannot just assume that they won't audit your position and therefore you don't need to think about recognition. The second one, administrative practice and precedent, is unique, and it's unique to this model. And we spent a fair bit of time in the last few years talking about it. So administrative practice and precedence, this is a concept that deals with recognition. So you're required to consider it in that first step that you just talked about, Cassie. And so these are times or situations where a tax position could be considered a technical violation of the law but it's widely known and well understood and consistent practice of the government, whatever authority you're looking at, to nonetheless accept the position. Okay, so then Jen, I'm not that familiar with that part of the model. Is that something that comes up very much? So it's interesting. It comes up. I feel like we discuss it fairly frequently when surprises come up, but it's not something that you actually would expect or see very commonly applied. So keep in mind, one fundamental principle is it's the tax authority. It's well understood that they are going to go against their own law. So you wouldn't expect it to come up very much. But if I gave you an example, um, so in the U.S., the IRS, um, the statutes for federal U.S. tax purposes would require you to capitalize and depreciate equipment. And there's no de minimis threshold in the standard or in the regulations. But it's well known that the IRS commonly accepts and companies have a, um, I should say companies have a very common practice of having some kind of a de minimis threshold. So they may not capitalize anything under $1,000 or $100,000, depending upon materiality for them. And so it's, it's well known that the IRS will accept those positions and won't necessarily adjust that if that's something that's consistently applied year to year at the same threshold. And in fact, that the government agreed that it was you know, if you will, a de minimis. So that's an example of an administrative practice, right? There's nothing in the law that says it, but it's kind of known that that's the government will look at it. Jen, that's very helpful. So then now we're on the same page as to what a tax position is and when it should be recognized. So then after you've concluded that a particular position should be recognized, how would you measure the tax benefit to be recorded? Under U.S. GAAP, the concept of measurement is based upon the cumulative probability. And so under the cumulative probability concept, an entity would record the benefit that is the largest amount of tax benefit greater than 50% likely to be realized upon settlement. Wow, that's a mouthful. So maybe an example would help. Imagine a situation where you have a $100 benefit that you're assessing. Okay. And you're trying to figure out how much of that benefit should you recognize. And let's look at this in, and presume you have come up with three possible outcomes. One outcome is you win 100%, one outcome is you lose 100%, and one is you settle for $80. So, but the cumulative probability method would say is first of all, you assign a probability to each of those possible outcomes. Then you start with the highest outcome. And you keep going down the chart, if you will, until you get to the position or the benefit, I should say, that is greater than 50%. So let's use this example. Let's assume I've concluded that $100 benefit, I have a 30% chance of winning, okay? Let's assume my settlement position of $80, I have a 45% chance. And my 0%, meaning I'm going to get no benefit, I believe is a 25% chance. So I'd look at that. I'd start thinking about my measurement at $100 and 30%. Okay, well, so I'm not 30%, isn't 50%. I'm not over the threshold then. So I move on to my next level. 
And at my next level, I have a 45%. So cumulatively, when I get to that $80, the 30 plus the 45 gives me a cumulative probability at that point of 75. And so I'm going to recognize $80. I just passed over the 50% threshold. So obviously, a lot of judgment involved, a lot that comes into that mix. But when you're looking at it, the key thing is it's a cumulative probability and you're looking at the amount that is greater than 50% likely based upon your cumulative probability. So then, Jen, let me make sure I understand. So two things. First of all, in the example you just gave, which was very helpful, if my probability that I was going to get the full benefit, the $100 had been, let's say, 55%, then I would be over 50%. So I'd say, I'm good. I can recognize That's right. the full amount. Okay. And then... Maybe this doesn't matter, but you start with the highest threshold at the top and kind of work your way down the stack when you're yep. going through your assessment. Okay, that's very you start at the greatest amount of benefit. So in this example, I started at hundred because in my assessment that was the greatest amount. I, there was a percentage chance I could win a hundred percent. Okay. Yeah, and maybe I can jump in here with one nuance that comes up fairly frequently. So sometimes the tax position is considered binary. And that means there's really only two possible outcomes. The position is either sustained and the entire as-filed tax return benefit is accepted, or the position is lost upon challenge and none of the benefit would be accepted. So in that case, the measurement aspect is essentially all or nothing. Um, so the cum cumulative probability doesn't really come into play there. You either recognize all the benefit or you recognize none of it. And then you would recognize all of it if it's more likely than not that it will be sustained. Is That's that right. correct? That's right. You got okay. it. Good. All right. So now we covered recognition and measurement. So then Cassie, how about, so I've done my initial measurement and now I'm in my next period or my next period of my financial reporting. When do I make changes to my uncertain tax positions? So assessing the accounting for an uncertain tax position is a continuous process. So you have to reassess both recognition and measurement um, each period. So sometimes new information can impact recognition. So if a company hasn't already taken the benefit of a tax position, so it had decided it was not more likely than not that it was going to you know, be sustained upon um, examination, and then that was their decision in earlier financial statements, but now there's new information that comes along, it would recognize the benefit at the earlier of three different events happening. So the earlier of the period in which the new information causes the company to determine that it is more likely than not now, the statute of limitations for the tax authority to examine the tax position expires, or the tax position is effectively settled through examination, um, or negotiation or litigation. So the earlier of those three events is when you have to record the benefit. It's not optional. So you can't effectively settle a position, but then choose to wait to recognize the benefit until, say, the statute of limitation expires. And that, Cassie, I'll just jump in. That's such an important one on effective settlement. Um, we get this question a fair bit. So maybe just one clarifying what effective settlement is. In order... Uh, well, I guess two things. One, uh, effective settlement deals with the recognition step. 
And in order for a position to be effectively settled, the tax authority, three conditions have to be met. The tax authority completed all of its examination procedures, and that means any administrative procedures, appeals, or anything else. The entity does not intend to appeal or litigate any aspect of the tax position. And then it's remote that the tax authority would re-examine any aspect of the position. And as you can imagine, that last one in particular, you really have to understand what the process is in the jurisdiction that you're um, talking about. So if those three conditions are met, you've met effective settlement. And it doesn't matter if this statute hasn't lapsed that would be the earlier update and you need to recognize it. I can't stress it more that what you just said, you know, it is just not a policy choice. Jen, it's very helpful. One of the questions, you guys making a big point that it's the earlier of and the effect of settlement and then when the statute has lapsed. And we focused on the case where settlement happens first. Are there any subtleties then or things that I should consider if my statute has actually lapsed in terms of recognition? Yeah, so obviously, oftentimes we're under audit for multiple years. It's usually like a multi-cycle. It, not always, but often, um, particularly for bigger companies. So when a statute lapses for one period, it it's only dealing with that one period. It wouldn't be giving necessarily evidence about the other period. So when that happens, if that happens to be the earliest of those three dates that Cassie walked through, then that's when you would recognize your benefits for position in that period. Okay, that's helpful. So we're just focused on things that could change the recognition conclusion, but is there anything that we should be considering that could impact measurement? There is. So new information could impact the measurement of an uncertain tax position, just like it can recognition. But you can't change your measurement just because you reassess the same information that you had last quarter and came to a different conclusion. You actually have to have new information. So for example, a development in case law That might be the type of new information that could impact how you assess the amount of benefit you would recognize, maybe because the company's view on possible outcomes changes. Those probabilities might have changed or the amounts associated with those probabilities may have changed. And so you would reflect that in your measurement when you got that new information. Okay. So then another question for you, and I remember this vividly from my days as an audit partner, is that with uncertain tax positions, one of the areas that often comes up with audit clients is documentation. And clearly there's, from everything we just walked through, a lot of judgment that can be involved. And particularly, you know, we were talking about this cumulative 50% threshold, et cetera. So if a company is considering its documentation, what are some of the best practices or things that they should think about? Yeah, so this does come up a lot, and and you hit on it, right? Recognition and measurement, and frankly, even subsequent recognition and measurement, um, it all has a lot of judgment underlying all of the decisions that you're making. So I think the key is to have documentation that reflects both the facts and then the analysis and how it applies to those facts and why you made the judgment you made. So if you're thinking about probabilities, why are those probabilities? How did you come up with them? Why does that make sense? If you make a change to them, how is it based on when Cassie mentioned new information? So documenting what that new information was and why it impacted. You know, documentation could include an opinion, but it doesn't automatically have to. It could be an internal analysis. It could be, um, frankly, it could be multiple inputs. It could be numerical and coming up with sort of the numbers. And it can also be a written analysis as to your facts and how the law applies to that. Could be case law analyses. So in other words, 
similar to the information you're looking at, your documentation could be encompassing a lot of different pieces. And you know, I think one of the keys to documentation is, in fact, ensuring that you have a process in place to, in fact, be tracking not just the initial recognition and measurement conclusions, but what happens thereafter. So what's the information that may have come up and ensuring that you have a process to timely address those issues um, and document them. Right. So basically, do your initial assessment and then each quarter as things potentially are changing, make sure you're documenting that or perhaps even saying nothing's changed. So my assessment has stayed the same. That's right. I think that's great. Okay. So then let's move to another topic. And this is actually something I covered more broadly in a podcast a couple weeks ago with Pat Durbin and Tom Barbieri, which is subsequent events. And we talked there about some of the broad issues and accounting for subsequent events, but like to talk here, very specific to uncertain tax positions. So how should we consider if there are any developments that occur after the balance sheet date, but before the financial statements are issued specific to your conclusion about an uncertain tax position? Yeah, so the guidance in ASC 740 with regard to subsequent events related to uncertain tax positions is explicit. And it says that developments that occur after the balance sheet date, but before the issuance of financial statements, are recognized in the period in which they occur. And so this guidance is the dominant guidance for, you know, things that happen. You don't look to the subsequent events guidance here. 740 actually addresses this head on for uncertain tax positions. So when you do have new information that's identified after the balance sheet date, companies should think about whether that new information already existed as of the balance sheet date or not. Like you really have to look closely sometimes there really was the information really was there and maybe you just didn't find out about it until after balance sheet date. So you really have to kind of look at that closely. Um, but if it is in fact new information after the balance sheet date, then companies should disclose the impact if material as is required by GAP, but they shouldn't account for it until the period it actually occurred. So then, Cassie, that's definitely helpful, and it's nice to have an area where the guidance is very clear about what you're supposed to do. So then let's talk about one more item today, and this would be developments in tax regulations and how those interact with and impact on certain tax positions. And I know this has been a big topic since the Tax Reform Act in 2017, but I also am aware that this can have an impact even outside of major uh, tax law changes. Yeah, so that's right, Heather. And I, I think it's an important one because the way you think about when you account for something in the tax law can be different than how you might think about developments in FASB standards. So maybe let's just level set. And I think we might have hit this on another podcast, but you account for changes in tax law when they're enacted. So that might not be the same as the effective date. You could have a change in tax law enacted today that's not effective for a year. But even though it's not effective, you're required to account for it. So if you contrast that, you might get a standard that's finalized and it needs to be adopted. And there might be an early adoption period, but setting early adoption aside, when you're talking about a standard, you know, you might have a year or two to account for some provisions. The trick is that doesn't happen in taxes and that causes some challenges when you're looking at either quarterly or year-end financial statements. So if a change in tax law happens, it needs to be accounting. That's new information in that period and it needs to be accounted for in that period, not sort of three or six or nine months down the road. You know, you asked me before about documentation and 
just as an overall UTP, I think this is another area, just navigating new information and ensuring that you have a process in place for collecting and tracking and analyzing all of that new information as well. So this is probably another one that ties in well with the question you asked earlier. Maybe I can jump in because some people listening might be like whiplash, like, wait a minute, why are we talking about tax law changes? I thought we were talking about uncertain tax positions. So besides knowing that it's important to account for tax law changes when they're enacted, it's also important to understand the different types of tax regulations that can be issued. So their actual changes in tax law typically come in the form of either final regulations or temporary regulations from the Treasury, and they are actually laws, so they must be accounted for when they're enacted. However, in the U.S., there's another type of regulation that could potentially impact accounting for uncertain tax positions as well, and that's called a proposed regulation. Yeah, that's right, Cassie. And keep in mind, I guess when we're talking about this, we're using words in the U.S., but there would be similar language and similar processes outside the U.S. But if I just pick up on what you're saying about proposed regulations, proposed regulations, they don't have the same effect as law. But proposed regulations are presenting Treasury's thinking or the government's thinking with regard to how to interpret statutes that already exist. So when you think about that and you come back to the uncertain tax positions, companies would look at that as new information and they'd have to assess what, if anything, a proposed regulation might mean. You know, does it in any way shed additional light to a position that maybe was a close call or does it not? The other thing you have to think about is sometimes proposed regs, even though they don't have the full effect of law, they actually have equivalent to like an early adoption, you know, uh, provision, if you will. And so in some of those cases, you actually, a taxpayer can actually um, early adopt, if you will, the rules. And so clearly you want to be thinking about that when you layer that in. I think the key thing on all of this is when you start talking about interpretations and regulations and how that all plays into your a certain tax position analysis, you have to make sure you have the right resources at the table at the right time in order to analyze both what you have going on within your business and then how those laws are interpreted or how they'll be affected or affect your in fact, fact pattern. That's good advice for most areas of accounting, in fact, to have the right people from the business at the table. So it's a good spot to wrap things up. And Jen, Cassie, very helpful and definitely made it seem very straightforward and easy. I know it's not quite straightforward anytime you're dealing with judgments. So if someone wanted more information, I highly recommend that you check out chapter 15 of our income tax guide. And then one last thing before we wrap up today. So ever since we've been working from home and working in this virtual environment, we'd like to wrap up all our podcasts with positivity, something nice that's come from all of these changes. So the question I thought I would ask you guys today is with all the changes, is there something that you really like about your new routine that's new and different from before? So for me personally, one of the things I really like is that my office has a door to the outside. So now you know, we're on a lot of video calls, but often I'll be able to get up and walk around outside during some of my phone calls. And it's just nice to be able to have that break and get some fresh air. So maybe Cassie, I'll start with you. Well, I have a similar um, response because I adopted a dog right before all of this started. And so he and I go for a walk for an hour every single morning, rain or shine. Um, luckily, it's been mostly shine and not rain. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I'm getting my steps in and I'm getting fresh air and I see my neighbors and um, that's been great. Perfect timing for a new dog, Cassie. Very yes. good. Yeah. And Jen, how about you? I think 
for me, I am, I, I guess I'd say I get to have dinner with my kids most nights. Um, and I, and I didn't typically get to do that because that was when I was commuting. Right. So, um, I used to aim to get here to put them to bed. And so now I actually get to have dinner on a lot more nights with them. And that's actually been uh, pretty fun for all of us. We've uh, introduced some new family games. <laughs> oh, very nice. Well, those both sound good. Definitely some good things that have come from all of this crisis. So thank you guys both again. Really appreciate all the insight. Great. Thanks, Heather. Join me back here this Thursday for the next episode in our What's Next Summer Podcast series. We'll be talking about digital innovation and how tech-enabled companies deliver more value and help their workforce build skills for the future. And for all your other accounting needs, join me every Tuesday when we cover the fundamentals of accounting. Upcoming episodes include accounting for convertible debt and how to use a Form 8K. So that you never miss an episode, subscribe to this series wherever you listen to your podcasts and stay up to date on the latest content. Let's connect on LinkedIn. For PwC, I'm Heather Horn. Thanks for tuning in. This podcast is brought to you by PwC, all rights reserved. PwC refers to the U.S. member firm or one of its subsidiaries or affiliates and may sometimes refer to the PwC network. Each member firm is a separate legal entity. Please see www.pwc.com structure for further details. This podcast is for general information purposes only and should not be used as a substitute for consultation with professional advisors.